let's just pray as we, as we, before we come to God's word. <coughs> Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and Lord, give us hearts to draw close to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Resurrection life in Christ. Strength for today and hope for the future. That's what we want to talk about this morning. But as we consider the resurrection of Jesus, we look back 2,000 years ago and we see that the woman, the disciples, they had a range of emotions, a range of feelings, a range of reactions. They were pondering, they pondered what might have happened. They were puzzled, they were dazzled, they were terrified, they were overjoyed. And then they disbelieved. Some disbelieved that he could even rise again from the dead, doubting Thomas. Those are the responses we read in the early hours of that first day of the week after Jesus' crucifixion and burial. In Luke chapter 24, we saw that the woman had got up very early in the morning to do the job of the undertaker to prepare the body for its burial. They came with their spices. And on the way there, Mark tells us in Mark 16.3 that they had wondered who would help them move away the stone that was over the tomb. It was a very big stone, we're told. And it would take several strong men to, to roll the, the, the stone away. These stones tend to be on a slight incline so that it's easier to close it than to, to open it. So when they went there, <clears throat> they were puzzled to find it. Well, firstly, the stone had been moved, but then Jesus' body wasn't even there. And suddenly two men or two angels appearing as men dazzled them. They were dazzled, then they were terrified and they fell down with their heads to the ground. But they were told that Jesus had predicted that on the third day he would rise again from the dead and so they remembered that. And they were overjoyed. They rushed back and found the other disciples and told them what had happened. <clears throat> but they thought no that can't be true that's too good to be true they disbelieved them however Peter and John ran to the tomb and found that Jesus was not there just as they had been told Jesus then appeared to, to people he appeared to Mary Magdalene he appeared to, to Peter he appeared to the two walking on the Emmaus road he appeared to the, the group of disciples who for fear were locked away in a room he had breakfast with them on the shores of, of Galilee. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians fifteen six that he appeared even at one time to over 500 people at one time. But Jesus didn't stay on earth after his resurrection. After a short while, after commissioning the church to go and make disciples from all nations, uh, which we read at the end of Matthew 28, he ascended into heaven and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father. There are still people here who don't believe. They hear about what happened to Jesus and they have disbelieving hearts. 
But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus is risen. He is alive and he is in glory. If anybody is interested in, in finding out what an investigative journalist has found out by looking at the, the facts of, that are recorded to us in the Gospels of the resurrection of Jesus... Well, there's a number of investigative journalists who have gone and tried to disprove the Bible, try to disprove the resurrection. Lee Strobel is one of them, The Case for Christ. We have that book down there on the, at the back. There's a few of them. What they found was that actually the evidence points to the fact that Jesus is risen. The Jews had no vested interest in... They, they couldn't produce a body. They had no vested interest in, in hiding a body. All they had to do was prove, listen, there he is. The Christians certainly wouldn't have come up with a gospel message where their main hero died if the whole story had been made up. There are loads of different reasons and a lot more details that point towards the fact that Jesus is risen. If this, was, if, if this evidence was presented in a, a legal court, the judgment would be, he is risen. It wasn't the case of Jesus fainting and then recovering. The evidence shows he actually was dead. That sword that was pierced into his side, that brought both blood and water out, well, doctors, medical experts now tell us that that can only happen, water and blood, if the person has already been dead for some time and the, the blood has stopped flowing and the, the red platelets separate within the blood and the blood settles to have clear watery liquid at the top and then deep red below it. And so they get water and blood coming out when his heart was pierced. Medical evidence is that he was dead. Centuries later, Mark Twain was thought to be ill and to have died. Shortly after his death was reported in the newspaper, he said that well, the report of my illness was a mistake. It was actually my cousin who was ill. He said the report of my death was an exaggeration. But the report of Jesus' death was no exaggeration and no mistake. He had died and he had risen again from the dead. The only mistake that happened was that the disciples didn't believe initially that he could rise again from the dead, but he did. And his rising from the dead, he guarantees that everyone who trusts in him will rise again from the dead and will live with him when there will be no more suffering or sorrow any longer. So today we don't just celebrate the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. We celebrate the fact that he is the first and he is bringing many with him into glory to rise again and never die again. Jesus was the pioneer of resurrection. Many people have pioneered things Gutenberg pioneered the printing press, which made book publication possible. 
back in 1440. The Wright brothers pioneered flying. Charles Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart were the first man and woman to fly across the Atlantic. Faraday discovered electricity back in 1832. Fleming discovered penicillin almost 100 years ago. And in 1989, a man called Tim Berners-Lee invented the World Wide Web. These were all pioneers. And where would we be today without antibiotics, the internet, electricity, and so many other things? But when Tim Berners-Lee invented the internet and published it, it was largely ignored at the time. People didn't realize the significance of it. And yet every website we visit today, every internet-enabled app on our phones is derived from what he invented. And just like he was largely ignored initially, so too the resurrection of Christ is largely ignored by so many people. But one day, just like the internet is now all over the place, one day we will be celebrating the resurrection of Christ, our resurrection when we're with him in glory. And sadly, too many people will be wishing that they had accepted Christ. So the gospel message is a message of telling people about what has happened so that they will benefit from it. It's not about convincing them that we're on the right side. It's about convincing them that they need to benefit from what is offered to them, to recognize the importance of Jesus' resurrection, to recognize the importance of the cross and the forgiveness that they can have. Well, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and to some extent, Luke, when he wrote the book of Acts, record for us the, the story, the narrative of the facts of Jesus' resurrection. Other writers in the New Testament, like Paul, tell us about the significance of it. The Gospels tell us it happened. Paul tells us why it's important. While we can't focus on the facts of the resurrection, I'd like us to consider, I'd like us to focus on the significance of the resurrection. I'd like us to look at Colossians chapter 3 in a short while but firstly the significance is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved Paul writes since we have been made right with God right in God's sight by faith since we've been justified by faith we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Christ has brought all who have placed their faith in him to a place of undeserved privilege. As we look forward confidently to sharing in the glory that is ahead. Having been resurrected and ascended into heaven, he is in glory. And all who have trusted in him are waiting for when we will be with him in glory. When we will appear glorified, just like he was glorified when he ascended. Our hope, our sure hope for tomorrow is a real hope. 
It's not something which is, well, I hope it'll happen. It's, I know it will happen. We will be resurrected into a new glorious body, into a perfect body. We will have a perfect mind, a perfect spirit. There'll be no more sin in our lives. There'll be no more suffering in the world. We will be glorified just as Christ is glorified. We will be seen in all the glory that he has prepared for us. Let's look at the first few verses of Colossians 3. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, that theme of resurrection here is at the start of what Paul is saying. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Your glory will be revealed. When we place our faith in Christ, people don't necessarily see too much change in our lives. We still look the same. Hopefully we will be more godly and grow in godliness. But we still struggle with this body that needs medication. It needs the health service. It's not able to do all that we want it to do. It's a fallen body. But we will have a glorious new body to come. We struggle with our minds. We have imperfect minds. But we will one day have perfect minds. But thankfully we have the first fruits of our resurrection. We have, well, we wait for our bodies to be resurrected when Christ comes. We have resurrection in our hearts. We have new life in our hearts by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says is the first fruits, the deposit of our salvation. Paul teaches that our real life is not the old life that we once had. We've died to that life. But our real life now is the new life we have in Christ. And this life is to some extent hidden in Christ with God. People look at us and they don't see the new body. They don't see the new us as much as we would like them to. But they can see at times the new heart. The change that God has made in our hearts and in our lives. So it's not completely hidden, but it's largely hidden. Sometimes when we're walking in the old nature, they see the old person much more and they don't see much of the new person. But when we're walking in the Spirit, they see something of that life in Christ. When Christ was living on earth, we didn't see him in his glory. We saw him just as another person. It was only on the Mount of Transfiguration that three of the disciples were able to see him in something like his full glory as much as they could at that time. And he is seen in glory by the angels in heaven at the moment. And when he comes again, we will see him in all his glory. And in a similar way to when he went on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory that was seen then, in a similar way, when we 
go to be with the Lord, when, when he comes again, when we receive our new bodies, we will be seen in all the same type of glory. We won't simply be the way we look now. That glory is hidden for us, but it is ours and we will receive it then. Therefore, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. The significance of the cross, the significance of the resurrection is that we are forgiven. Christ has been raised from the dead, but we are forgiven in our hearts and we have been raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. So we ought to walk in that new life that Christ has given us. When he says, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, that doesn't mean we should be looking up and looking past the skies and wondering what are the angels doing at the moment. (laughs) What that really means is we should think about the things of God. God is in heaven. It's another way of saying, think about the things of God. It's a way of saying, fix our eyes on what is godly. We ought not to fix our eyes on what is worldly. And that means not just thinking about what's going on up in the the skies, up in heaven. That means thinking about things practically here and now, having devotional times with the Lord. That means fixing our eyes on how we can live a more godly life, how we can worship God more, how we can be a blessing to others. When we think about think about the things of heaven we think about how we can love others how we can be at peace with others how we can be patient with others kind to them and so on the fruit of the spirit fixing our thoughts on heaven often means fixing our eyes on how we can be practical here on earth That's why Paul goes on to list ways in which we ought not to live just in the next verses in Colossians 3. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust and evil desires. Don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater worshipping the things of this world. Jesus tells us to be in the world but not of the world. We need to live in this world, but we need to not be focused on the things of this world, but focus on the things of God. We are to take up our cross daily, putting to death the old sinful nature, the flesh, just as Jesus was put to death in the flesh himself. We ought to put to death the fleshly nature in us and walk in the Spirit. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Why does Paul say this? Why does Paul make a point of telling them this? The reality is that when we place our faith in Christ, we are not immediately transformed into being perfect. Being sanctified, being perfectly sanctified is ours. But just like somebody who is 
a miner, say, eight or nine or ten years old, and they inherit a fortune. They're not allowed to actually get the access to the bank account until they're 18 or 21 or something like that. So too, eternal life is ours, but we haven't got access to all of it here and now. We are being changed. We are being sanctified. The church is not a showroom for perfect people. The church is more like a, if you compare it to a car showroom, it's not the showroom with all the nice gleaming cars out the front. The church is more like the workshop out the back where cars are being worked on, where they're being improved. When Christ comes again, then we will be in the showroom. Then the angels will see us in all the glory that he has promised to us. But at the minute we are being restored, we are being changed. We're in the program. We're in the program to be changed. But we're not yet perfect. So Paul has to remind them. He has to remind them to keep pressing on, to keep putting off the old nature and to keep putting on the new. And thankfully, <clears throat> we are being renewed as we learn to become more like him. And as we become, we become more like him, we become more like each other as well. As we walk in him, we find that we have more in common with, these, with people who might have come from very different backgrounds to us. Very different countries or communities or cultures than us. But we have one thing in common and that is Christ. As the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, as the people of Christ, we come together and we are united in him. He writes, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, a, barbar a barbarian, an uncivilized, a slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. It's not immediately obvious from the reading here. But these aren't just descriptions of people. These are descriptions of different communities or nations of people. Scythians, barbarians were different people groups in Europe at the time. And there's a real sense in which there was ethnic and cultural division between these groups. But what Paul is saying is that in Christ, all those ethnic divisions, all those cultural divisions, those nationality boundaries, those community boundaries, those hostilities are broken down. We have unity in Christ. When we come to faith in him, even though we're still struggling to live that out, well, legally we are new people. We belong to Christ. We have one identity. We might still have different passports from different countries, but that is not our real identity anymore. Our identity is in Christ. We are his people. And we are united with people who are, well, we're Irish, we're British, we are in Christ, we are French, we are Ukrainian, we are Russian, we're American, we're Syrian, we're Nigerian, we're Chinese, we're Japanese. God's people are from all nations. And if we are in Christ, we ought to celebrate 
the fact that we have a common Savior, a common faith, a common identity, and not let these other things divide. In the fall, sin entered the world and it divided man from God, it divided man from woman, divided community from community. But in Christ, the fall is reversed and we're united together with God, with each other. And it's only by his grace working through people that we can see something of that unity at work in the church amongst his people here and now. But then we will see it in all its glory. We will experience it in all its glory. But as God's holy ones, we ought to live as his people. Since God chose you to be his, the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. How ought we to live? What does it mean to be heavenly minded? It means to be forgiving each other. Some things are little, and if they're infrequent, we just forgive and we don't have to necessarily say anything other things we need to deal with and where there's repentance where there's forgiveness again we move on and that's part of the cycle of being sanctified in the Lord we ought to live with tender hearts with mercy, with kindness, humility gentleness and patience being forgiven Forgiving one another just as God has forgiven us freely. Living in harmony with one another. Loving one another in Christ. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body you're called to live in peace. And always be thankful. We're called to live in peace and always be thankful. The peace of Christ is different from the peace of the world. We have a peace process that has brought an end to hostilities, but it's not the kind of peace that we really need. It's not the peace of Christ. True peace can only come between people when it is the peace of Christ. When we have a unity in Christ, when the things that have been done wrong are forgiven because of the cross justice is satisfied and yet grace can abound true peace can only happen whenever people are restored in their hearts to a new life through the Holy Spirit where they desire to love one another where hearts have been changed they're no longer intent on hostility any longer Living the resurrection life means being heavenly minded, but not so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly use, as people have sometimes said. Sometimes people are so heavenly minded, it seems they've got their heads full of Bible truths, but they just don't know how to relate to people. They don't know how to be patient, kind, generous, 
that's not what it means to be heavenly minded, to have your head full of Bible truths. To be heavenly minded is to live in a godly way. To be heavenly minded is to be of so much earthly use that people see that you're a loving person, you're a kind person. Unless our faith makes a big impact in our earthly life, then we aren't heavenly minded enough. So Paul says, let the message about Christ and all its riches fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And he says again in in the next verse, to be thankful as well. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks through him to God the Father. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We ought to be thankful people. Being thankful changes our attitude towards God and others. There's a sense in which the the New Living Translation doesn't tease out as much as maybe some other translations like the ESV that we ought to be witnesses and we ought to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We ought to live lives conscious that we are representing him as a representative of the Lord. So, we ought to live lives which are worshipful, singing songs and hymns in our hearts to the Lord. We ought to live lives which are thankful. We ought to live lives which are godly lives. What is it that we need to do? What is it that we need to stop doing in order to live a more godly life, in order to be more heavenly minded? What do we need to change in our lives? What recurring temptations do we give in to? What sins do we need to put more effort into stopping? As we look out at the problems in the world, how do we react? How do we help others? We can't fix everything here and now, but we can fix things for the world to come. We can't bring people into a perfect restoration of everything that is broken in this world now, but we can bring them to Christ who promises restoration for all that is broken in the world to come. The resurrection life gives us strength, the new self here and now, but it also promises a future which is glorious. A future without division, without sin, without sorrow. A future with God close to us. With people from all nations, equally together before God. If we're struggling, struggling to be patient, struggling to live as we ought to, struggle to love others as we ought to, if we need more power in our lives, We need more of Christ in our lives. We need more of the Spirit in our lives. We need more of his resurrection life working through us. 
We need to turn to him and simply trust. We need to repent and believe. We need to turn from what we ought to turn away from. We ought to trust that he will give us the strength to follow him, to live as we ought to. If we haven't yet trusted him or handed over our lives to him, if we haven't turned back to God through faith in Christ, we can't hope to make progress in this unless we do that first, unless we turn to him and simply accept, God have merciful to me, a sinner. Then we will be under no condemnation. Then we will have the spirit to renew us, to strengthen us. Then we will be able to joyfully walk with him. The gift of eternal life is simply through faith in Christ for all who accept it. No matter what we've done, no matter how bad we've been or how good we think we might have been compared to others, all of us are under the threat of condemnation on the judgment day unless we turn to Christ, in which case there is no condemnation even here and now. And by his resurrection, by his resurrection power working in us, we have strength for today. And we know that when the glory that is still to be shown will not be hidden anymore, when it is seen in all its fullness, we will be like him. We will be glorified in the glory he has promised to us as well. The resurrection gives us strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Praise God for all he has done for us. In Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for, Lord, taking sin seriously. We thank you for the justice for sin on the cross. We thank you for the justice for sin when those who have refused the cross, Lord, will have to pay for it themselves, Lord. We don't delight in that, but we thank you there is justice. But Lord, we pray that people will hear this gospel message. People will turn to you and accept the the justice of the cross instead. Accept the love of God that is given through faith in Christ. Lord, we pray that you help us to live this resurrection life, not only looking forward to it when we will experience it in its fullness in eternity, but Lord, to live this resurrection life more and more as we become more conformed to the image of Jesus each day. And we ask this in his name. Amen.